This is Pastor to Pastor, a podcast of InnoBTS and Level College. Pastor to Pastor is here to help you lay a biblical foundation for your ministry. Welcome back. It's good to be with you again. I'm Charlie Ray. I'm here with Adam Hughes as we continue to answer this question, what is a pastor? Uh, We've been trying to make the argument that the definition of a pastor is then connected to the office of a pastor and specifically what a pastor does. So we've put forward our definition of a pastor. And if you look at that definition, one of the things it talks about is that a pastor leads the church, that a pastor leads God's people. So the one of the questions that immediately comes up is, well, where does a pastor lead? And if God has given us um, some understandings of what does it mean to be a pastor, then God has probably said some things, too, about what does it mean to lead. So I don't just get to say, okay, I'm a pastor. That means I'm supposed to lead. Let me pick where I want to go. You know, So we need to be thinking about, okay, what does the Scripture say? What has God said about where does a pastor lead? Uh, so Adam, I know you've uh, thought this through some and, and done some uh, writing on our website for us about this. So any particular passages that come to your mind that might help us think through this question, where does a pastor lead? Yeah, and I think you know one of the things that we've argued from a theological perspective is that when we think about pastoring and we think about all these all these offices and roles of pastor, who is ultimately the chief shepherd? Who do we look at for our example? Well, it's Jesus, right? And so um, there's a couple passages that come to mind that I think that I think will help us look at how Jesus did uh, lead and how he didn't lead in some in some capacity that might be a good place to start. And I'll, I'll mention a couple of them, and there's others, but I'll mention a couple of them in just a moment. But it, it really stems out of this idea or this question of did Jesus always, and I'm, 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 I'm accentuating the word always. Did Jesus always meet every need that everyone thought they had, every want that they had, the physical situations in their life, their felt need? Did Jesus always focus on and prioritize that? Really grew out. I, I had actually a, a church member one time that coordinated um, the, the, uh, the the giving of blood. Uh, I'm, I've uh, I've lost the name of what it's called right now. Blood drive. Blood drive. Thank you. The blood drive. Thank you. That's one of those early mornings, I guess, uh, for our church. And I was joking and bantering with them one time, and I just said, "Well, I'm afraid of needles. I'm not going to do it." Now, let me be very careful before anyone gets mad at me. Giving blood is a great thing to do, and you should do it, and it's worth doing. Well, they quit back with me. Well, if Jesus were here, I promise you, he would be a, a, a blood donor. And 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 probably the answer is Jesus yeah, gave yeah, his yeah, blood, yeah, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> the truth is he probably would. But my response back in all seriousness was, well, probably and maybe. But let me tell you what Jesus wouldn't have done. Jesus wouldn't have done that to the detriment of ultimately what the mission was and what he was wanting to do. And I think that's what I'm trying to say. When we look at some of these things in a moment, I don't want to say these things are bad or wrong in all contexts or can't be helpful for your ministry. But the question is, should they supersede the ultimate goal and the ultimate mission? Should they take away from the ultimate goal and ultimate mission? And I think a couple places where we see that, where we're reminded of this, one is Mark chapter 6, specifically verse 34. Now, just to set the context here, this is one of the occasions, interesting enough, where Jesus fed a multitude. And specifically, what we read in the passage is this. When Jesus went ashore, he saw a large crowd, Now listen to this, and he felt compassion for them because they were like uh, like a sheep without a shepherd. And then the text ends this way, and he began to teach them. 
Now, what Mark notes here and how he does so, I, I think, Charlie, is significant. Jesus felt compassion for the crowd, and what would we expect next? Well, he fed them, right? But and he taught them. He taught them not because he didn't care. He taught them because he did care. Because, again, the greatest need in their life, the greatest need in our life, wasn't, isn't, the, isn't the physical sustenance. You, you get fed, you'll, you'll be hungry again. Uh, you get fed today, you're going to be hungry again tomorrow. Uh, but the greatest need and what had to be prioritized was their spiritual need, their spiritual hunger. Yeah. So Mark 6 is one of those places where I think we see a great picture of what Jesus does and why he does it with a focus and an eye towards what the main what the main thought is there. Yeah, I jokingly like to use this if I ever got a complaint about a long sermon. I, man, I just love you guys so much. I can't <laughs> I can't help but just teach you, you know. It's just it's this compassion that I have for you guys that I I don't want to shortchange you with a short sermon. So, I, I mean, I say that a little bit jokingly, but it is a reminder that it is a demonstration of love to feed people with God's word. And we talk about this and we'll get into this more later, even feed my sheep, right, is is not about giving them food, but it's about nourishing them on God's word. And so, yeah, I think that's a great, a great example for us. Any other passages that come to mind? Yeah, what's interesting is Mark 6 in the context of feeding a multitude perhaps shows us a positive of what Jesus did do. But John 6, which is a in a, in a context of, of Jesus feeding a multitude again, uh, or Jesus feeding a multitude, uh, it, it shows us what Jesus didn't do. Mm-hmm. So if anybody remembers the, the context of John 6, so one day Jesus feeds this large multitude, and then they get up the next day and begin to look for Jesus again. What they don't know, they know that Jesus' disciple got in a boat and headed to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus didn't go with them. But they get up the next day, and and without a boat, Jesus has made his way to the other side, even though he didn't lead with his disciples. And so they know he's he's he performed a miracle one day, and to even get to the other side of the sea, he performed a miracle in the middle of the night. I mean, that's their assumption. So they track Jesus down the next day, and what are they tracking down for the next day? Uh, they want to be fed again. Right, give us something else to yeah, eat. Yeah, and, and the dialogue that Jesus has there with them and how it ends is really telling. Now, I'm giving, I know I'm giving the Cliff Notes version of this, but you can go read it yourself, but you'll remember this. They they come and basically Jesus says, look, you didn't come finding, you didn't come looking for me because you wanted me. You, you came looking for me because your bellies were full yesterday and you want them full again today. And he says, basically, that's not what you're going to get. And he tells them, look, you've got the, the food which perishes, work for the food that doesn't. And they say, well, what is this food? And tell us. And Jesus says, well, basically, it's through faith that you receive the bread of life, which is which is him. Mm-hmm. And ultimately, this passage leads to a conclusion of Jesus saying to them, "You're, you're not. I'm not going to give you that food. I'm not going to give you the physical sustenance anymore. If you're going to follow me, what you're going to get is me. As a matter of fact, he goes on to say, uh, which really, I guess, in some ways confused him. He says, you're going to drink my blood and you're going to eat my flesh. That's the only part you're going to have of me. And, and the, the end of John 6 gives us a very telling picture. Yeah. Though that crowd, even what John describes as some that had followed him up to that point, some of his disciples at that point left him. Now that would be interesting enough if it were in the end of the story. But what happens is Jesus looks at, at the at the at the 12, at those that are left and he says, "Do you leave me too?" Yeah. And Peter, perhaps summing up the 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 theological principle for us in the whole passage, speaks on behalf of the disciples and hopefully on behalf of us. And he says, where else would we go? For you have the words of what? 
eternal life. Right. And so I think what we see when we see in this passage, did Jesus, a couple things just to say here, did Jesus always meet the physical felt wants, needs that people had? And when we look at this passage, we have to definitively say not always. Yeah. And the issue wasn't that Jesus didn't care about them. The problem or concern for Jesus wasn't that he didn't want to feed them. His concern was, and I think this is seen through his dialogue with the crowd and then what Peter says, his concern was they might have gotten bread but missed him, yeah. the bread of life. Well, and so he explicitly denies them more bread because they're coming for the wrong reason. Exactly. And so we'll get into some specific things of where pastors don't lead in just a minute. But that's a very important point is that Jesus recognized what was most important and, and so he, he cared more about what was most important, not temporal needs. So, right, is there eternal hunger going to be satisfied or is there hunger for a day going to be satisfied? And the way I say it, I know we're about to get into some particulars. And these are just a representative sample of things you might be drawn towards or asked to do as a pastor that aren't the main thing. Because what I always say and what I want to maintain when I'm pastoring is, look, Jesus refused he would never sacrifice the eternal mm-hmm. for the temple. Yeah, He always prioritized the eternal. Yeah. So, well, let's get into that some. So I know you, you have a couple of different, uh, we're going to start with the knots first. Yeah, right? absolutely. So, so we're going to start with wh- what is a, where does a pastor lead not to? So why don't you walk us through some of those things? Let's talk about some of the things that are not the primary calling of a pastor. Yeah, I think the first one that I would say here, Charlie, is, is and, and I think it's because it's very relevant in the time in which we find ourselves, pastor primary, primarily is not leading to political revolution. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen, you as a pastor, I promise, you are going to be pressured. You're going to be asked to support a, a certain political candidate mm-hmm. or a political cause. You might even in your own personal preferences have a desire to do that. But you must remember that uh, that is not the ultimate calling of what you do as a pastor and where you lead. Now, I kind of jokingly say this, but I think it's true. Look, Jesus never once said to his followers, let's storm Rome. Right. Hey, let's go have, uh, let's go have a, a demonstration on the steps of the, 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 the Bema at, uh, at Corinth. You know, you just, Paul didn't even do that, right? That's not what he did. And so, Uh, I'm just going to tell you, it's not there. I've looked for it and I can't find it. Ultimately, we're not called to lead or start political revolutions. So I think one of the questions that I think helps me on this, and and we can kind of think through this question as we go through each of these is, what can you bind my conscience on? So so let me me give you an example here related to, to politics, right? So you'll have some people who say, man, as a pastor, you've got to speak to this issue or you have to, I mean, this is every election is the most important election ever, right? So man, this next election really matters. And if you as a pastor aren't telling people how to vote or calling people to vote or addressing political issues, then you're not, you're not, you're not doing what a pastor is supposed to do. So I think one of the ways to help us think about this is what can you bind my conscience on? And I don't think you can bind my conscience on having to address every political topic that comes up. Now, does that mean as a pastor, I'm not going to speak to those things? No, not necessarily, right? As I preach through the scriptures, issues are going to come up. And and politics deals with issues in people's lives, so scripture's relevant to these issues. And we want to apply God's word to our people. But you can't bind my conscience on 
you have to be doing this politically. You've got to speak out for or against this candidate. And I think with a lot of these knots, to me, that's a helpful framework to say, not is this a, a bad thing to do, but can you bind my conscience on this and say, as a pastor, if you're not doing this, you're not be, being faithful to your calling? I think that is a that is a fantastic way to say that. So yeah, so so the first knot I would say is just you're you're not a a political uh, revolutionist. That's not what you're called to do. But there's a second one that I think in a lot of ways, Charlie, is closely related to even this concept of some of these political issues to come up. And that's what I would call social advocacy. You're also not leading to social advocacy. Now, uh, there, there, there. I think there are so many legitimate physical needs in the world. And I want to be careful here. I'm also not saying that Jesus didn't meet any of them right. because he did. And I'm also not saying, which I'll say more about this in just a second. I'm also not saying that the church doesn't call to care for people in these ways. Uh, many in your own community, including inner city pov- poverty, homelessness, senior adult health care, even immigrant needs right now. Foster care is a big one right now that I think is, uh, is, is a very worthy cause. A lot of these things will be dropped on the doorstep of your church. And I think we also at the same time have to say that passages like James 1.27 does uphold the idea of taking care of orphans and widows. Now, I would argue, I think, in the context of Scripture that you're primarily talking about, at least first and foremost, within the context of your own church Mm -hmm. first. But I understand that you do see those things. But what I would say is it is impossible. It is impossible for you or your church to be able to meet every demand that comes your way. And so you have to remember, yes, you will be involved in some of those things. You'll lead your church to do some of those things. But but you've got to remember, it's not on your shoulders to do all of them. You can't do all of them. And even above those things, there is even a greater, more eternal calling than that. So I think, in a sense, we're reminding ourselves here, too, that doing these things is not bad in and of themselves, but they have to flow out of what the primary calling is. Absolutely. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. I think different churches, too, will become passionate about different of these areas. And so sometimes we expect people to be passionate about what we're passionate about. And, I mean, let's just be be frank about it. I mean, issues are going to vary from church to church. And community to community. Exactly, because of the differences in the community. So homelessness is going to be a bigger problem in one church than it is in another church, for example. And so I think sometimes we expect everybody to care about what we care about in exactly the same way. And so what we're, we're, we are trying to argue here, and we'll get to what our primary mission is later, uh, but these kinds of things have to flow from what we're primarily called to do. You see this even sort of in the in the social gospel movement from years back, right, where, you know, if we're not careful, the social issues, in effect, end up replacing the gospel. That's right. And, and that's a very dangerous place to be. And I think as I'm talking about this, matter of fact, I don't think, as I'm talking about this, that is that is absolutely the point that we're trying to make, right, is that these things aren't bad, that these things have a context, but they can't replace, yeah. biblically speaking, what a shepherd must do. Right. So a third thing that we see here, and maybe in the world in which we live, this has become even more prevalent lately, a shepherd is ultimately not leading to event coordination. And again, I'm not saying these things are bad, but but if we're not careful, what the church has become is just a place that's responsible. So so I'm a I'm a person that lives in my in my community, and there there are all these activities, there's all these hobbies that I have. 
And now I become a, a believer. I, I become a churchgoer. And now I need a place to Christianly do all of those things. Mm-hmm. I need a place to play sports in a Christian way. I need a Christian concert. I need a Christian movie night. Right. I need all of these things. And so now it's the church's responsibility to do every one of those things and provide those alternate avenues to do all of these event coordination. And therefore, the pastor simply becomes the leader of, of coordinating all of these events in the church right. so the people are, are happy and satisfied. It's like, you know, uh, I've even had conversations with people for, well, you know, my, my, my son or daughter likes going to that church better because they provide this event and you don't provide that event. So we'll come here if you'll provide that event and provide mm. it better. Yeah. And ultimately, a biblical shepherd, that is not your, your primary calling. That's not where you're leading. Yeah. So I think we do want to build fellowship. We do want to build community. That's an important part of what a church is. It is a gathering of believers. Um, but, but if we're not careful, when we go too far down that road, we effectively pull ourselves out of the world, too, and don't have those opportunities to minister to other people because we've sort of created our Christian silo. You know, So, so I think that's another... Uh, danger that we need to look out there. So uh, one more that I think we're going to talk about, the last one on the knots before we move into to what we should be doing, not to benevolent engagement. What would you say about that? Yeah, and in some ways, this is very close to the social advocacy as well. But look, we're specifically here talking about people in financial financial straits in your community that have needs. And, and I'm just telling you, probably as pastor, as far as the needs that were dropped on my doorstep that I didn't have to go looking for that came to me, uh, were were this this you know I don't I, I I'm out of gas I don't have any food I can't pay my light bill and I'm not in any way downplaying that and so what I'm going to say here is again uh, as a church you you will and and should engage in helping your own members who are struggling financially strangely enough most of the time as pastor it, I had some legitimate needs that way in the church and often they would be embarrassed or didn't want to go to their own church to ask for the needs, but you're hearing it from the outside constantly. And so you're going to have the opportunity and you should meet the needs, financial needs of people in your church. And you'll have the opportunity to do some of that perhaps as a gospel witness to those outside the church. Let me just say this, though. I I think there's a couple passages of Scripture that are interesting to me here. I like to take the interplay between... um, Acts 3 and and uh, and Acts 4 mm-hmm. to show a point that we're not wrong to help people financially outside the church, but I think the calling, and I think sometimes we misrepresent this, is to people inside the church. Think about Peter and John after they have Pentecost in Acts 3. They're on the way to the temple, and they meet the lame beggar at the beautiful gate, and he's begging alms. What does Peter say? He says, look yeah. at me. And he says what? He says, silver and gold I don't have. Right. And then what I do have, I give to you in the name of Jesus. Get up and walk. And by the way, the man was made whole. It's the actual word there, that one of the words that, that represents salvation or complete wholeness there. So I, I don't know that that was just talking about physical wholeness there. I think that perhaps might have been a display of spiritual wholeness that came in Christ. So it's interesting. Peter denies him finances and then gives him something in Jesus' name to, a, to someone that wasn't a part of the church. Now, now, what he said was, silver and gold I don't have to you, which I'm not saying Peter was lying was true. But what happens one chapter later at the end of chapter 4? Mm. It says that those in the church, anyone that had, had property, was coming and, and is selling it, laying the proceeds at the, disciple, at the apostles' feet. Why? So they could distribute it to anyone that had need right. within the church. Yeah. So it's interesting, his interaction with someone outside the church is, I don't have silver or gold, that's not what I'm going to give you. 
Yeah. I'm going to give you something in Jesus' name. But inside the church, what were they doing yeah. one chapter later? Meeting other needs. Right? So I, I do think, listen, don't hear me say that we don't meet needs inside the church. We don't meet needs outside the church. But again, I'm going to say you aren't going to have the ability, nor should you feel your conscience bound to meet every financial need outside the church. So I think there's two important points there, one of which is we actually are conscience-bound to meet genuine needs in the church. So that's made very clear in 1 John and other places. If you see a brother or sister, that's distinctively Christian language, right? If you see a brother or sister in need and you don't do anything about that when you have the means to help them, I mean, how can you claim to love you know, God, and, and you don't love your brother. Uh, even in Matthew 25, which is a fame, uh, one of the most popular passages for feeding ministries, right? Um, when did we visit you in jail and when did we, you know, feed you all these different kinds of things? Jesus actually says, what you did to the least of these brothers of mine, which he's already defined in Matthew as his brother is the one who does the will of his father, right? So we actually are conscience bound to meet needs in the church, but if you serve in a church, where you have an established building, you are going to get all kinds of people coming to you and asking you for help with rent, help for gas. And you are not as conscience bound to meet those as you are to meet the needs of members of your church. I've had, uh, I mean, goodness, so many people tried to basically say, what kind of pastor are you? You're not going to give me money for gas. Or, um, I mean, I've tracked enough stuff down to find out people were lying to me. One person was asking for help with rent. I found out essentially what he was doing is he just had his buddy Uh, He gave me this number for his landlord, which I found out later was just a friend who was lying for him and saying he needed rent when it's just completely made up. Well, that's actually a disservice to give him money, right? There's biblical principles there. Those who don't work, don't eat, that kind of thing. So I think that's an important concept to keep in mind. And we go back to this question of what is my conscience bound on? You'll have people from outside your church try to bind your conscience and say, if you don't give me money, you're not a good pastor. Um, so, so I think that's a, a helpful way to think about it. Well, as we kind of, I hate to wrap up uh, too much with now we're finally getting to, well, what do we need to do? And I think we've covered this a lot already, but uh, what would you say about what is then the primary places that a pastor leads? Yeah, and I'm going to say two things, but I think they're two sides of the same coin, if I can say it this way. The first one I would say is to Christ-likeness. You are leading to Christ-likeness. So one of, the, one of the goals of a biblical shepherd is to lead his people to have hearts that are more and more like Christ. We call this process perhaps discipleship. So our goal should be that we ourselves and those under our charge grow to have a clearer and sharper biblical worldview. And I would say then act consistently in that worldview. A pastor shepherds his people to look, think, believe, and behave like Christ. Uh, I'm reminded of of Acts chapter 11 here, verses 25 and 26. Remember remember that context. The church in Antioch has been established. Barnabas goes down from Jerusalem, sees what's happening there, sees that what's going on is genuine, but then sees they need discipleship. So what does he do? He leaves, goes, and finds, then referred to as Saul, brings back to the church in Antioch. And verses 25 and 26, I think, are telling. Mm -hmm. It says that, that, that for an entire year, they gathered the church. They taught. They 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 taught together the church. They they gathered the church and taught them. Now I'm sure they did other activities in that year, but the one that Luke chooses to explicitly give us, they did as, is they taught them. And then the passage ends like this: and the disciples were first called Christians mm. in Antioch. Yeah. 
And this is a picture I think of discipleship that the, the pastor is responsible for in yeah. his people's lives. So maybe they had a basketball league. We don't know. But what do we know? They that taught they're, them. They're committed they're to discipling them. That's them. right. Yeah. They're discipling them. Yeah. So the other side of the same coin, I think, I think so to Christ-likeness or to discipleship, but the other one is to disciple-making. So not only must a shepherd concern himself with the growth of his own flock, but I think he must lead them to join uh, in, in reproducing the same effect in others who are not yet a part of the church. Now, we call this process disciple-making, and certainly it includes sharing the gospel with those outside the church. But I don't think it includes just that. Mm-hmm. I think there's also this, if we read, look, um, Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20, it's interesting there that you've got one command in that passage of Scripture and then a whole lot of participles. Right. In some ways, telling the circumstance that you make disciples and also telling the means that you make disciples. You baptize them. Well, I think that probably implies having shared the gospel with them first, mm-hmm. then accepted the gospel, and then what's that process of baptizing? You're putting them into the church. Mm-hmm. Because I, I think I think the cradle of discipleship that God intends is the local body. Mm-hmm. And what happens within that local body? Well, the next part of simple tells them, teaching them to obey everything that Christ has right. commanded, right? So I, I think it's not just, it is, it is, it is sharing the gospel but it's not just sharing the gospel. And I think the biblical pastor, the shepherd, is leading himself to that and leading his 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 flock to do the same thing in other people's lives. I think that's an important point uh, for lots of different reasons, but we don't want to to make it look like we're the only people who can make disciples, for example. One practical way to emphasize this is pastors need to be calling up fathers to disciple their children and their wives and, and parents to disciple their kids. Um, so, so we need to be calling people back to disciple-making, right? The parents are the primary uh, disciplers of their children. It's not actually the church's responsibility. Now, we want a church to come alongside parents and fathers as they disciple Provide their kids. Provide resources. To help, help them yeah, in that absolutely. process, right? But we need to, to be calling up fathers in particular to say, well, one, what's one way you make disciples? Well, you need to be doing that in your home and, and not expecting the church to do what God has called you to do. We want to help. Uh, we want to come alongside. We want to be a part of this process. But ultimately, you're the one that God has given that to. Now, I, I think this is a helpful discussion for us to have, uh, to think through uh, where does a pastor lead and, and to recognize, look, we don't get to pick the destination. 